Good morning. Would you join me in turning to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10. My name is Taylor Sutton. I'm one of the pastors here at Zionsville Fellowship. And as you are turning to Mark 10, verse 13, let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come now to hear from you in your word. Would you speak by your spirit now, even as you have spoken through your prophets and apostles long ago? And we pray this through Jesus, who died, yet lives. Amen. Money is complicated, isn't it? We think about it all the time, but we don't like to talk about it. Most of us know that it won't satisfy us, but we spend an awful lot of time trying to get more of it. In 1964, it was Paul McCartney who wrote, can't buy me love. But today, Sir Paul is a billionaire. So... People say, at least a lot of people say, the greatest movie ever made is Citizen Kane, which is all about how money cannot fulfill you. But movies cost money to make, and movies are fundamentally a money-making venture. So money is complicated. And into this complicated, touchy, Subject comes Jesus of Nazareth. And as he so often does, he overturns expectations. He subverts the accepted opinions. And he makes uh, even his closest friends feel uncomfortable. See, the Bible has a lot of nuanced, balanced things to say about money and wealth and possessions. But, in this text, Jesus is mainly saying one thing. To embrace Jesus as king, you have to let go of money. Let's look at what Jesus says. Mark 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, 
honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. To embrace Jesus as your king, you have to let go of money. We see three movements in this passage. We see first a model citizen. Second, we see a cautionary tale. And then third, Jesus gives us two truths about riches. So we'll work through this passage in those three movements. A model citizen, a cautionary tale, and two truths about riches. So let's start with a model citizen. You can find this in verses 13 to 16. So people are bringing little children to Jesus, and his disciples assume that Jesus is far too important and busy to be bothered with kids. But this actually makes Jesus angry. And he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And then Jesus uses this moment as an occasion to teach something that goes well beyond children in and of themselves. He, he goes on to say something about discipleship, about what it means to embrace the kingdom, the reign of God that Jesus is bringing. Look at verse 15. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus is bringing into the world 
the restoring force of God's rule, God's kingdom. And what he says here is, the only way to get in on this is to receive this kingdom like a child. Now, what characteristic of children does Jesus have in mind? It's not immediately clear. Um, It's probably not uh, some kind of virtue that children tend to have, like being trusting or being simple in their thinking. More likely, Jesus is referring to something intrinsic in the, the station in life in which children operate. Here's what uh, New Testament scholar James Edwards writes. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. So receiving the kingdom like a child means giving up any claims to deserving it. It means surrendering and and forfeiting the delusion that we have something to offer Jesus in exchange for what he's bringing. It means if you want to embrace what Jesus is doing, what he's bringing, you have to embrace your own smallness, your own weakness, your dependence on him. Now, this truth it cuts across all areas of our lives, but I think it has a particular relevance to money, and one of the reasons I think that is because how Mark has put this scene right next to the scene that comes after it. So we are meant, I think, to compare these children with the very wealthy grown-up in the very next paragraph. And that brings us to our second movement, a cautionary tale. So if children, in all of their insignificance and weakness and, and inability to have any claim on Jesus, if they are the model citizens, this man, this adult provides us with a cautionary tale, a warning of how even the most well-intentioned and earnest can miss and even reject what Jesus is bringing. This is in verses 17 to 22. So this man comes up to Jesus with what appears to be a genuine, earnest question. Verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus directs him to the law and says, obey God. To which the man replies, I've done that already since I was young. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And then he says this, verse 21, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come 
follow me. And to this command, the man is disappointed, surprised, maybe even offended, and he walks away. That was a a price that was too high for him to pay for eternal life. So what is Jesus doing here? Why, Why does he answer this man in this way? He doesn't always talk like this. There was a a moment in John chapter 6 where people ask Jesus, the crowds ask Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the work of God? And Jesus' answer there in John 6 is, this is the work of God, to believe in the one whom he has sent. So what's going on here? Is Jesus forgetting that salvation is by faith in him and not by works? No. No, he's not forgetting. Salvation is, in fact, something we can only receive through faith. We cannot earn it with our works. What Jesus is doing here with this rich individual is he is guiding him to the end of himself. In other words, Jesus, in this conversation, is showing us something about the nature of true saving faith. Think about the contrast between the little children and this man. What Jesus is doing is gently taking this man to a place where he can become more like a child. He can give up the wealth that allows him to have clout and claims and credits. Notice a couple things here. First of all, notice the first thing Jesus says. When the man asks him, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His first response is to challenge the very idea that any mere human can be good. So he asks, what must I do, good teacher? And he says, hold on, who's good but God alone? Jesus doesn't expand on that, but there's, there's something there challenging this young man's assumptions about moral goodness. And then when Jesus issues this shocking call to walk away from everything he owns, to sell it all, give to the poor, follow him, what he's doing is he's inviting this man to trust him with the thing that is most precious to him. And what gets exposed is that this man does not actually trust Jesus. He's not willing to trust him with his great wealth. Do you remember that scene in uh, It's a Wonderful Life when there's a run on the bank? Uh, George Bailey's savings and loan is in chaos as all the customers descend on the savings and loan demanding their money. They want their money out. When you don't trust a bank, you don't want it holding on to your money. You want your money. And so George Bailey convinces them to not take all of their money out by by getting them to agree to just take out some, which he then pays from his own personal cash, which was supposed to be for his honeymoon. And he keeps the savings and loan afloat by preserving uh, his customer's trust. 
You can tell you trust someone when you trust them with your money. And how could it be any different with Jesus? So we see in this story something of the nature of true saving faith. If Jesus is going to be your king, he must be king of everything. You can't pretend to have Jesus as Lord and Savior and and then withhold certain aspects of your life for you to continue ruling over. If that's happening, he's not actually your king. At the end of the day, you are. So, coming back to this cautionary tale, what, what does it mean for us? What are we supposed to do with this? Is every Christian required to forsake all possessions? Well, the answer is no. But don't be too comforted by that. But, but I do need to point out that we see even in the Gospels themselves Uh, Jesus seems to have been financially supported by a number of wealthy individuals, uh, many of whom apparently were women. Uh, In a similar way, Peter, who in this very passage says, we left everything, even just a a reading of Mark's gospel would seem to suggest that Peter kept his house in Capernaum and that Peter's house was perhaps sort of the, the base of operations for Jesus and his disciples for his Galilean ministry in particular. So it is not the case that every Christian is called to forsake his or her possessions. But it is the case that every Christian is called to put all of his or her possessions at the disposal of Jesus Christ. It all belongs to him. And that that doesn't mean merely that you're willing to walk away from your possessions on the theoretical, unlikely event that it becomes necessary. I think this means more than that. If that's true, if we're going to say, yes, I'm willing to leave it all, uh, that ought to be reflected in our day-to-day handling of our possessions. Uh, Just earlier this year, Eric Weddle received a phone call. Eric Weddle, at the time, was a former NFL player. He had been retired for two seasons, hadn't played, but he got a phone call from his former team, the LA Rams, and they needed help. The playoffs were beginning, and they thought they could use uh, Eric's services. So someone from the team called him to see if he was interested and, and, and asked him if he was still in shape. And it turned out he was. He came back. They actually won the Super Bowl. But at one point, Eric Weddle said this after he got this phone call and rejoined the team. He said, even though I haven't been playing football, I still train like I'm playing football. So Eric Weddle gets a phone call that almost no retired football player gets. This call to come back. Come help us win a Super Bowl. We need you. He wasn't expecting that call. It almost never happens. But because he was living a lifestyle 
uh, of training and discipline and sacrifice, he was ready. He was able to start playing again in the NFL. So maybe the call to walk away from all your money, all your possessions, sell your house, sell everything, maybe that call is not going to come to you. But if it does, you ought to be ready to answer it. In, in other words, maybe Jesus' call on your life today is not to part with all of your money. But it seems to me from this passage that it is his call that each of us are regularly parting with some of our money for him, for the gospel, for the poor. If Jesus is going to be our king, he gets to be king over everything. So we've seen a model citizen. We've witnessed a cautionary tale. And now, third, we come to Jesus teaching his disciples two truths about riches. So look at verse 23. The man has left. Jesus now speaks directly to his closest friends. And he says this. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So here's the first principle about riches. Being rich makes it hard to follow Jesus. This shocked his disciples. He wasn't merely saying... Yes, even for rich folks, it's hard to follow me. He was saying, no, especially for rich people. They are at a unique disadvantage in following me, entering the kingdom of God, receiving that which I am bringing into the world. And his disciples were not expecting this. But he doubles down. He says it a few different ways. He goes on to say in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it's actually impossible for someone with great wealth to trust in me and enter God's kingdom. It requires, he goes on to say, the supernatural intervention of God himself to save a single wealthy individual. And as people living in an affluent corner of the richest country in the history of mankind, these words ought to sober us. But we might also ask the question, why? Why is this true? That it's hard for rich people to follow Jesus. Well, consider this. We have a tendency to turn money into a God substitute. The Bible's word for this is an idol. An idol or a God substitute is anything that we give the trust 
loyalty, affection, and obedience to that belongs only to God. And we obviously, we can turn almost anything into a God substitute, but money is uniquely tempting as a candidate for the job because of what it does provide for us. Money can get you pleasure and power and prestige. Money can get you nice things. It can help you stay in control of your life. It makes you look impressive. Those are alluring promises that money always holds out to us. And to a degree, for a time, money delivers on those promises. So, so here comes Jesus to restore people back to the one true God, which means to follow Jesus, we have to leave our idols behind. But the hardest idol to leave behind is the idol that seems to be working for you. And so often, money seems to be working for us as a God substitute. But here's the reality. Money is a fine servant, but it's a terrible master. There's a fascinating example of this in J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit. So in The Hobbit, you have uh, Bilbo Baggins, who is The Hobbit, and he goes on a quest with these dwarfs to help them recover their stolen treasure, guarded by an evil dragon. And, and Bilbo, uh, he's promised a share of the money, so he's, he's interested in the treasure. But the dwarfs, they're all about the treasure. They, they live for gold. And so through a number of adventures, they, they get the gold, they get the treasure. The dragon is gone. But then a bigger problem develops which is you have a whole bunch of other people who come for the treasure. And they think that they too have a right to that treasure. So you have this dangerous standoff between these dwarfs that are basically willing to give up anything for their gold and these armies of men and elves who want that gold too. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but I'll just tell you this. The reason that Bilbo is able to save the day is that the gold doesn't mean as much to him as it does to the dwarfs. And at first, this outrages the, the dwarf king. But later, as he's dying, the dwarf king says this to Bilbo, If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. For Bilbo, gold was not his God, and that made all the difference. So if this is true, that following Jesus as king demands letting go of money, what, what does this actually look like in our lives? Well, it might look like, for some of us, Buying the less expensive house in order to give more to the poor. 
It might look like turning down a promotion that requires relocation in order to do ministry where you are. But maybe for others it looks like accepting relocation to a more expensive and difficult place to live for the sake of ministry. Maybe it looks like steadily increasing your giving to the Lord's work until it starts to hurt a little. I once read about a Christian couple who made a resolution early on in their marriage that they would increase their giving as a percentage of their income by 1% every year. So I don't know exactly where they started, but that was their resolution. Whatever their income did, the percentage of their income that they gave to the Lord's work would go up by 1% every year. And by God's grace, they did that for years and years and years until they were giving away a substantial amount of their money for the Lord. Maybe living this out looks like using the resources you have to put them uh, to work for the kingdom of God. Eric mentioned the sad passing of, of Ed Runyon just a few days ago. One of the things that Ed did that I just recently found out about was he, he retrofitted a basement in a house that he had bought for the purpose of housing missionaries. Maybe this looks like risking your livelihood to maintain your integrity. A former pastor of mine told the story of his own father who refused to roll back odometers at the used car dealership where he worked, even when the the management demanded it. And so this young dad with young kids lost his job in order to obey Jesus. Here's, Here's a question for each of us to consider this week, a diagnostic question Is your standard of living different from your peers who have a similar income to you? Is is your lifestyle distinguishable from the people who have roughly the same means to live whatever lifestyle they can afford? Because here's the reality. If Jesus is not your king then the only rational thing to do is to get as much money as you can and then use every dollar you can to maximize your pleasure and power and prestige. So if Jesus is your king, it ought to look different. We ought to be spending our money differently. We ought to be earning our money differently. It ought to look different if Jesus is king over everything we own. And here's the amazing thing, or here's one amazing thing. We live in a pretty wealthy area. And yet, by God's grace, there are so many of you who are doing this, 
who are living in such a way that it is evident that Jesus is king over your money. So if you're wondering, what does this actually look like? Find someone in this church who loves Jesus and watch them. Watch how they live. Watch how they spend their money. Maybe ask them, what difference has Jesus made for the way they use their wealth? Friends, there's good news. In a sense, all of this is good news, but here's the, here's the good news in this hard word from Jesus. Jesus is a better king than money. There's one more truth about riches we haven't looked at yet in verses 23 through 31, and, and it's this, that riches given away or given up for Jesus' sake are always worth it. You can see this specifically in verses 28 to 31. So Peter pipes up, as Peter so often does, and says, see, look, we left everything for you. The implied question perhaps being, what about us? What's going to happen to us? And Jesus' answer is, Peter, you will never regret it. Look at what he says, verse 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time all of those things with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So here's the king, the one who has just said, you have to trust me with everything. And he's saying, I'll take care of you. I will take care of you. I will take care of you now, even as you go without and suffer. And in the world to come, in the new creation, I will take care of you beyond your wildest dreams. Eternal life. If you think about it, the benefits of money, significant as they can be, the benefits of money are limited in scope, they're temporary in duration, and somehow they're never enough to satisfy us. In contrast, the benefits of knowing Christ are limitless. They last forever. And they, they reach down to satisfy us in the deepest parts of our souls. Jesus is a better king than money. So when he says to you, following me as king means letting go of money, it's not a bad deal. Not only are the benefits of money limited and temporary and, and never enough to satisfy, they all, in the end, depend on you. You see, money is a parasitic ruler because to get the benefits that money promises, you have to do all the work. You have to go earn it. You have to manage it well. You have to know where to invest it and what risks to take. It all rides on you. How different, how different it is with Jesus. Listen to how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 8. 
speaking of Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That is the kind of king that you can trust with everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. We thank you for your words even when they unsettle us and make us uncomfortable and stir up questions in our minds. Lord, we know it is ultimately for our good. And so we pray that you would help us now as we sing and prepare to depart into the rest of our Sunday, into the week ahead, would you help us to embrace you as king? For some of us, perhaps, that means embracing you as king for the very first time, leaning on you to rescue from sin and death and hell and leaning on you to to rule and lead into the abundant life. For others of us, that means Trusting you again, trusting you perhaps just a little bit more confidently. Would you help us with that? Would you be at work in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to stir up a deeper confidence in your rule and reign? Specifically in this complicated, sensitive area of our money, our possessions. Lord Jesus, we confess that they will never satisfy us like you do. So would you help us to live that way? Amen.